and welcome to the first episode of our fourth season. This is uh, the complete, I said com- complete, didn't I? Yeah. This is the complete Satoshi Kon. It's exciting, Travis. Oh my God. When when was the last time we said a different name at the beginning of this show? It was a it's, long two years? <laughs> it's It's been, it feels like forever, you know, with the world as it is. It feels like it's been forever. Yes, but, uh, too, yeah. Yeah, it's been two years. Uh, we're sticking to our guns and taking our time and uh, doing things right. And uh, it is fun to start a new project and to start something so drastically different from everything we've done before. It is very different. I think there there are two two big differences here. One of which I think is substantially more uh, significant than the other one. But we'll start with the le- the less less significant one, which is that this is our first uh, Asian filmmaker. It's our first Japanese filmmaker. Japan is uh, obviously one of the sort of powerhouses of world cinema, and a lot of people who know me know that I'm obsessed with Yasujiro Ozu. Also love Kurosawa, Oshima, uh, you know, Kenoshida. The list could go on and on. Um, Koreeda for for a, a, a modern filmmaker. But uh, this Satoshi Kon is is different than those filmmakers, obviously, because of the much more significant factor, which is that he works in. Uh, different medium than those filmmakers and any of the filmmakers that we've covered, which is animation. That's right. Yeah, this is a this is a huge step. Uh, step. It's 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 funny. I was talking to uh, my son was asking me why I was doing so much more reading than I I do read uh, for for our other podcast, but I really boned up on uh, the history of anime because I started to realize as I was watching the films. And thinking about how to talk about them, that it, I have a very strong uh, cinema background and a very strong history of cinema, and a language that I speak when I talk about when I talk about films. And so to talk about animated films, or even one step different, anime, anime. Sorry for everyone who's out there uh, gritting their teeth at me for mispronouncing that. Um, <laughs> It's, it also has a different, a very different language. And so I really wanted to work hard at coming to this from a perspective of the rest of anime, manga, just that kind of uh, Japanese animation history uh, a little more stronger. So it is, a, it is a whole different, it is a different beast from American animation and from uh, even from Japanese film storytelling uh, tools, it it has it has different beats and different things, and so it's it's really exciting to it's almost like learning a new language. Yeah, and it's also sort of a, a, a term that has significant debate within it. Some people don't think of even Kone as anime. Certainly, don't think of somebody like Miyazaki, who is probably the most famous anime filmmaker in the US, uh, even as anime. I think most people think of Ghibli in general as being separate from that. Who and Most people who are, you know, very into anime in, in, in the US or, or even Japan. Um, I, I lean towards just the simple definition of Japanese animation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think that's, you know, I think we can, 
debate with it's a large enough area that of filmmaking that we can debate within that how how that gets defined and who the gatekeepers are to decide what what is or isn't uh, yeah, anime I but i think i read a whole book about what is anime and basically the end of the book was uh it's everything and it's nothing and i was like oh thanks for really <laughs> clarifying that that was a great 200 they pages told me that at I the spent. beginning of the book yeah <laughs> that should have been the introduction and i would have just put the book down with the same amount of information and i appreciate that <laughs> Well, and the so the other thing that we should note is, uh, you know, that the the other uh, thing that that Cohen worked uh, quite a bit in, especially early in his career, was uh, manga, which is um, essentially Japanese comics. And um, I collected comics very briefly uh, when I was a kid, but you have collected comics your whole life. Yeah, I'm a big uh, I'm a big comic book uh, fan. Yeah, and that and I. Uh... I want to say that I, I really didn't collect manga. Uh, my first exposure to that would have been the uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub series, I think. It was something that just wasn't prevalent in my main com- Dave's comics in uh, Brunswick, Maine. Uh, there wasn't a, a huge uh, manga section, it, but uh, a lot of the reprints that uh, both Epic Comics and... Dark Horse Comics and a couple others uh, really kind of uh, reprinted stuff, put it in American style, uh, English style uh, order. So reordered the pages, reordered the uh, the cells, and you know just you know redid all this work to make it so it was readable from uh, left to right in the same uh, fashion. But uh, it wasn't until later in my life that I started uh, really kind of getting into it at my new local comic book store who who has a great selection of it and so I picked up all of the con manga that I could find there's only one book that I could not get my hands on it hasn't been put out in English and that was uh the horror hotel one hotel horror uh but right. everything else is uh is very available and all incomplete except for one book uh tropic of the sea uh, that's the only manga uh, long form that he finished. Everything else is either short stories or unfinished, which is very right. interesting. Yeah, and I actually think in the case of Opus, which is one of the, the his mangas that, w- that we'll talk about, um, it, it kind of lends itself to that uh, unfinished state in a lot of ways in, oh, yeah. in terms of what, what, what he covers in it. Yeah, the story works well. I mean, his early stuff, he did a lot of like, uh, single standalone uh, stories that were appearing in different like young magazine and stuff like that which is a popular uh, manga collection magazine uh, in Japan uh, unlike uh, America where we would get single issues of books a lot of the magazines they have in Japan were uh, like kind of like a three or four stories in one book kind of they didn't call them comics they called them magazines and so you would have these books that were serializing like Akira was serialized uh, as uh, standalone little short issues in a larger uh, book so think like EC Comics or Creepy or one of those kind of uh, anthology comic books uh, but the storylines kept on going throughout many issues and uh, some of his early ones uh, Toriko Toriko is the one that I think he was most he won an award for, which got him notice and uh, and uh, got him work on working on Akira, 
um, mm-hmm. the comic book as kind of like uh, doing backgrounds and stuff. But uh, the three that I highly recommend people check out is Beyond the Sun, which is totally feels like the Tokyo, like it's a, it's almost like a precursor to Tokyo Godfathers. It has the, has a more defined look that feels more like Satoshi Kon's look that we see throughout the rest of his work, and it's super fun energy. Uh, Joyful Bell really kind of pulls together his fantasy um, and how it kind of leads a character towards their future, which is a theme that we kind of have in a lot of their movies, like this dream state that helps characters move forward in their own narratives. And then there's this one called Kidnappers, which is kind of like a crime pick. A guy steals a car and there's a kid in the car. And the fun thing is, is that the kid was actually in the car because the guy he stole it from was a kidnapper who kidnapped the kid. So he stole a car from a kidnapper with a kidnapped <laughs> kid in the back. And then, you know, it just becomes a whole like a Keystone Cops type of shenanigans, which is super fun. And then the other, you know, his first completed one was Tropic of the Sea. Uh, he put so much time and effort into this book that he uh, he drank too much and got hepatitis. Um, and had to be hospitalized, and uh, it really kind of wrecked him, which I think really kind of goes to show about how his commitment to wanting to really, really excel at what he's doing. There's many stories of just the amount of commitment he went into in making his films as well. He also did a uh, book called Seraphim, two six six one three three six wings. <laughs> which he made with I was uh, wondering like how do you uh, how do you recommend that to somebody you know like you, do you have to remember the whole, <laughs> the whole thing I think most people just call it seraphim but it's such a weird yeah. uh, it's such a weird title and so uh, to uh, he made it with uh, Mamoru he just Oshii. drew that yeah, yeah he just drew it yeah. he started uh, doing story I think by like the sixth issue it stopped being a art by story by and it became created by and it just had both of their names together which eventually yeah. led to them stopping making the comic because they were both arguing about which way everything should go um, <laughs> and then opus which he actually stopped working on because he started working on perfect blue um he always promised himself that he would get back to it and he just never did yeah and and he uh, you you mentioned uh akira and and uh Mamoru Oshii, um, Akira, obviously created by um, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo. Those those two filmmakers are probably uh, the the most famous in the U.S. in terms of anime filmmakers. Um, Akira and Ghost in the Shell being probably the, the the sort of representations of anime that people think of when they think of this uh, this medium of of film coming from japan and i think that led in he he worked with both of them both in uh in manga and in anime he did backgrounds for um pat labor 2 for oshi um and and worked with otomo on um memories which he uh wrote magnetic rose the short film for memories is an anthology Mm -hmm. movie which is available right now on Amazon Prime in the US uh, and well, I recommend well that we'll it. touch on that um, yeah. in a minute um, but I think you know the fact that he worked with the two of them and and Otomo attached his name to Perfect Blue which helped to get sold overseas 
set people up for an expectation of what Cohn's work was going to be, which I think with maybe perhaps the exception of some components of uh, Paprika, uh, really don't apply to the films that he made. He didn't make the kinds of movies that um, people expect from and from anime when they when they watch these movies um yeah and... he, uh, he went he went very uh naturalistic and realistic uh even though he skirted into w- realms of fantasy but when we say fantasy we're not talking like dungeons and dragons it's more like these uh dream states or non-reality i should say or dream logic he <laughs> you know the the shorthand for it is small-eyed anime where people didn't have the big saucer expressive eyes or the uh, chibu type uh, 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 simplified animation sections for emotion, but uh, just had this real realistic feel and uh, the backgrounds were, were a huge deal to them to make sure that this, uh, this world that they're building was uh, more realistic than some of the other uh, anime that had come before. Right. And, and obviously even things like Akira and Ghost in the Shell are more realistic than what a lot of um, anime fans in the U.S. would sort of die for, you know, <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. whether it's um, giant robots fighting each other or fantastical witch academies or, um, you know, and then it gets into the more extreme stuff, obviously, with more um, sexual or gra- graphically violent um content um that, oh, yeah. that becomes uh, a whole almost yeah, a whole was, genre was, onto itself oh yeah completely those were that was <laughs> sadly enough that's how i was introduced to anime uh back at dave's comics again when i was a kid uh he had a shelf behind the counter that had a the legend of the overfiend series and guyver and bubblegum crisis and you could uh, borrow those for uh, $2 a day and uh, you know so you buy your comics and you can rent these movies and he had no qualms about renting them to a uh, you know 12 year old kid who was very uh, (laughs) traumatized by some of the stuff he was saying yeah do you have any um, sort of more general uh, thoughts or you know comments about Japanese cinema in general before we dive into to Cohen himself well, uh, I was reading uh, in my in doing the history kind of stuff because growing up we were exposed to a lot of this repackaged uh, as kids cartoons, uh, Battle of the Planets, uh, Astro Boy, Speed Racer, stuff like that was uh, repackaged for us uh, with English dubbing and uh, usually cut together a little more uh, less violent, something that's more appropriate for kids. So upon reading kind of the history of it, and I didn't know that. For the longest time, uh, pre-war, even up a little post-war, animation had a really hard time taking off. Unlike uh, America, where you know even Windsor McKay was making animated films, and then you know Walt Disney and the you know Silly Symphonies and the uh, Merry Melodies and all that stuff, Japan had a really hard time getting their animation uh, accepted in a wider stream. Uh, They worked hard at making narrative features that were cut always cut budget-wise to make them shorts again and anything that had kids in it that showed them misbehaving in any sort of way 
was generally censored. So it forced a lot of anime divisions in different uh, film companies to work on a lot of educational animation, which, I mean, all most all of that's lost after the, the big earthquake. I mean, when I talk about educational, you always think of like the educational stuff we would see on Sesame Street or some of the, the Warner Brothers types educational cartoons, but these were these were made for all different ages i mean from how to seed your field to how to clean your radiator like it was it was very specific and they were there for educational purposes not to entertain so there was huge divisions that just worked on that or would do the animated sequences at the head or tails of movies the subtitling or title carding. It wasn't until World War II when they started their propaganda division, they were able to start making these really propaganda jingoistic type uh, rah-rah Japanese power kind of films that uh, started to make people kind of stand up and take notice to their animation styles. And then, of course, American the occupation and we... Uh, made them get rid of all that stuff, blacklisted all the animators that worked on those types of things. So whole animation divisions were just decimated and they had to basically start all over again. But now they were able to watch all these American cartoons that were not allowed to be shown for many years because they didn't want that outside American influence in Japan. So mm-hmm. it was very interesting. It's, a, it's, it's almost like how Akira Kurosawa became such a popular filmmaker in the West was by him watching Western films and then adapting them into his own style in the East and then making their way back. It's a, it's it's interesting how the cyclical way this uh, animation grew uh, there. It's it it's really it was really interesting and I'm still I'm still reading the the book. I'm just now in post-war uh, animation, so I you know maybe throughout the episodes I'll give more history as we go. So. Well, and Cohn himself has often said that he was more influenced by Western filmmakers than by um, Japanese animation or live action directors, which I think is kind of a, a misdirection a little bit, which we'll talk a lot about on the next episode. Um, mm. <laughs> it's hard to, for yeah. me to imagine somebody making Millennium Actress who doesn't love Japanese cinema. Oh, yeah. But, you know, he 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 mentions people like Terry Gilliam and and other filmmakers uh, from the West. Um, and obviously, uh, Cohen had a huge influence on uh, a number of, of Western filmmakers. So that that battle back and forth, the the bouncing ping pong ball of influence definitely continues with with a filmmaker like this. Well, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about him. Uh, he didn't have any sort of a particularly interesting uh, early life. Um, I think he was just uh, just like us, a uh, kid that got into comics uh, when he was young, was born in, um, in Hokkaido, which is the northern part of Japan, uh, in Sapporo, and really just uh, went to art university and started painting and making mm-hmm. um, comics. Um, and then so, you know, through that, he got a, a number of... Uh, gigs uh i think he won an award or two through through some of the mangas that he wrote and started uh working on um scripts he wrote a story for for uh one of otomo's uh films 
that uh, eventually got rewritten into a script um, for that and did some background work on some of his other movies and, and Oshi's movies. Ultimately uh, started working on Perfect Blue and Perfect Blue uh, was originally going to be a, a live action film, which I didn't know until uh, doing research for, for this podcast, but he in the Kobe earthquake, the studio was damaged, and um, so they weren't able to film it uh, where they were going to film it. And it's actually not even, I'm not even clear on whether that was like before or after Cohen came on uh, the scene, or if it was like a completely different uh, development of the movie, because I have a hard time believing that Cohen was ever going to uh, do a live action film. Did you yeah. stumble on anything like that? Yeah, I, from what I understood, it was uh, it was supposed to be live action, then the earthquake, They their finances were decimated, so they decided to turn it into animation, approached uh, Oshi about it, and he... He said he didn't. He said, ah, you know what? Okay. This would be good for uh, my, you know, my protege, uh, who at that point, you know, after the success of Magnetic Rose, which I also found out that uh, not only did a uh, uh, Cone write it, he also was. It's hard. The division of labor is very different, and I'm still yeah. having a hard time keep uh, keeping track. And I need to sit down and kind of write it all out so I'll remember it easier. But he was the one who designed all the characters. So he does the initial drawings, and then the animators work off of his initial drawings, and then Oshi went in and would do the faces uh, that were his style. So it was kind of like a weird mishmash. So the idea is that someone draws the characters, does like the the head, this you know, all their all their business. So you see them in full three quarter from behind, what they're wearing, that kind of business. And so the con did that, and then the animators would animate. And then Oshi would come in, and most of the directors of these animes, it de depends here and there, but they're the ones who are drawing the facial expressions, which is what gives everything the unique style of each individual director, which I found to be absolutely fascinating because I didn't know that's how it worked. Here in the United States, it's, you know, they do a character. Like, each animator usually gets a character right. of some nature. Uh, there... Each animator gets a scene, draws the scene, and then the director comes in, cleans up, and does the facial expressions uh, for the uh, for the sync and the dub. Mm. Uh, so I found that to be uh, a very unique and different way. So it was also interesting because watching Magnetic Rose, there is a very unique style to it. So after seeing the other works, I'm kind of like, ah, oh, this is weird. But then again, I never read a lot of Oshi's comics, so I don't know what different styles he worked in. But um, knowing that that had very similar looks to a lot of uh, Cone's work, uh, it kind of made sense afterwards. You mean Otomo, right? Yeah, because Osh Otomo. Oshi did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, Otomo. I meant Otomo. My apologies. Well, it's oh. it's funny too because he was the director, like the overarching director of Memories, but um, the the Magnetic Rose segment is actually attributed to Koji Morimoto who did one of the animatrix uh sections yeah. he, he did he's, a few other things um he's one of the madhouse and, guys right yeah like yeah i think so found um, madhouse. yeah i think there were like a, a lot of hands in the in the pot on that um i i think the thing that that's just most striking 
about all of Cone's work is just how much it's Satoshi Cone. <laughs> like it's, yeah. you know, when you watch something like Magnetic Rose and think about it as a collaborative work, the fact that it still retains so much of, of his central concerns is just really interesting. I think ultimately it has a lot more significant kind of fantastical elements than he typically worked with. But I think, mm. um, you know, it still retained that same kind of feeling of, of reality versus fantasy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Perfect Blue originally was a novel. And yeah, it was supposed to be a live action movie. Um, and then not only was it going to just be a... It wasn't even intended to be a, a movie that was going to be shown theatrically. It was going to just right. be uh, one of their original video releases. Uh, the OVA is uh, the director video, yep. and so that I know that uh, Cohn when he when he got the script, he wanted to change a lot of it because he kind of didn't like how it was. Um, so you know they told him that you know you just got to keep the horror, the suspense, and the uh, the pop idol type of thing and then from there he was able to spin it into his own kind of story and one of the reasons why the, sh- the movie uh, from what he says is so graphic and so violent in places was because he really wanted this to stand out against all the other video rentals you know usually anime fans are just going on the weekends and picking a movie and he really wanted to jump off the shelf so he made it uh almost over <laughs> over graphic because he really wanted people to make it memorable which then halfway through the, or more than halfway through the project uh the people that are watching it and uh reviewing the uh the work that he was doing realized that this movie had a lot more going for it so gave it a little bit more of a bigger budget and turned it into something that was going to be released theatrically yeah and he later uh said that he regretted some components of of um playing up some of those aspects which you know i think we'll get into um mm-hmm. in our discussion he he actually said that he never read the original book that he had only um received a summary of uh the previous script in the and the book and so he uh, essentially completely rewrote it and the the book itself was later remade uh into a live action movie by a uh, a pink director which is uh, their kind of softcore pornography in japan and it's not supposed to be uh very good but um, yeah i was not able to get a hold of it i tried finding it too but most most people that talked about it said that it was not good at all so don't even bother yeah and it's pretty uh, substantially different from what we have here i mean i think mostly what what was retained was the idea of a stalker Mm-hmm. of a pop idol and that's yeah, about I think, it i think it went back to the book as the source as opposed to uh the movie the anime that was made by cone as the source yeah and i think there's a lot of reasons for that which we'll talk about but um before we we do i mean what uh let's let's talk about perfect blue what what did you think of this this was your first uh experience with it right no i this is this is crazy this is one of the I think out of this bunch of films that we just watched, I think Tokyo Godfathers was the only one I hadn't seen before. Oh, okay. 
I I I think I logged him on Letterboxd. Sometimes I forget to hit that rewatched button because I'm not paying attention. <laughs> but uh, no, this was one of the uh, this was one of the movies that came with the uh, Columbia House Anime Club. You know, <laughs> you you, uh, you got a new movie every month. You can send it back, keep it if you want, send it back at any time. I, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think I think Akira was the initial. Then it was followed by Vampire Hunter D, and then Perfect Blue, then Rojin Z. Um, and then there were other ones after that, but uh, th- those were the first. Oh, Golgo 13, there was the other one. Uh, those were the first four that I got. And so I had seen Perfect Blue uh, back in its uh, VHS state. It was very rough and tumble. Um, but I do remember this movie. Um, I remember being super confused by it when I was uh, you know, 14 years old. I wasn't used to the language that uh, Cohen uses in this film it's is so unique to the films I was watching at that time. I don't think uh, I saw anyone playing with time and narrative time until Pulp Fiction uh, a couple years after, later. That's when I really started to grasp the, what editing can do uh, to a film. But this movie is... I like it a lot. It's so interesting. There's always something new to see. The visual style is so impressive. Like he said in some interviews, you know, uh, the difference the difference with making an animation versus making a film is uh, filmmakers can come across happy accidents, a shot that kind of looks cooler than they originally intended, or uh, you know, a bolt of lightning in the sky that wasn't meant to happen, but it adds to the film. Making an animated film. You have to even decide what kind of clouds you want floating in your sky. That's the level mm. of detail you need to put into it. So I'm super impressed by the level of detail that is within this film. Coming from watching old repackaged cartoons, most of it is close-ups on faces because then you didn't have to draw any background. And this movie is full of background elements that lend to the creation of the world, the building of the story, the building of the characters, and it's absolutely fascinating. It is hard to watch. Um, there are yeah. some there's some violence and sexual violence uh, for anyone who hasn't seen this movie. You know, be warned that there are moments that are very, very violent. But at the same time, it is part of a layering technique of reality versus fantasy that it doesn't detract from how horrible and violent the acts are, but then there's moments of stopping and realizing that this is all uh, put on, this is all something that is not as real, and so you kind of find yourself starting to question so much more after that, even going so far as to starting to think about like other things that you you know you have visceral responses to that you have to remember was filmed in a room with 10 people all doing their jobs with someone calling cut and you know people talking before and after and it kind of changes the dynamic of how we view these acts of violence on screen and kind of what role they play what their intentions are whether they're supposed to be uh titillating or or shocking or you know story or character building which con i think He's always said that he regrets making it so violent, but at the same time, it's a necessity for the character to be able to 
move forward in her career in her path um so he backs up his his uh i think i went too far but it's also it's also the the thing would still happen to her she would still have to be raped in the scene of the movie to be able to have her move forward in the story i just wish i didn't make it so so violent which uh was part of his uh I want to say kind of like youthful look at me, look at my talent, look what I can yeah. do nature that a lot of uh, young directors, you go to so many young directors works and you can see lots of trying to be shocking to get paid attention to the look at me, look at me kind of attitude. Yeah. I, well, uh, you, you brought it, you, you went right there. So Sorry. let's go there. I mean, I, no, that's cool. No, I think you're absolutely right to bring it up. I mean, I'd certainly, think uh any discussion of this movie i i feel a little you know irresponsible even just being like hey if you liked our kieslowski series like check out uh this guy satoshi Kone because i do think starting with this movie means going somewhere that can be extremely dis- disturbing for for people if they don't know what to expect going into it and i i think there's two big points that I want to make here. The first one is just that I think in a lot of ways, because he stops so frequently during the simulated rape scene to uh, let us know that it's not really happening, that they're shooting a TV show, that this guy says, I'm sorry to her, you know, in between takes because he feels so uncomfortable about the fact that he has to do this for his job, uh, you know, and, and, and act this way towards a woman makes uh, the scene more disturbing because it really makes you think about the fact that this is such a disturbing thing to watch and to experience and we've all as movie watchers who have seen thousands of movies seen this happen in films many times and seen violence against women violence against other people murders things like that and to know that it is you're having the same visceral reaction to something that you fundamentally know and that the filmmaker is continually reminding you is not real is a real reminder of like what 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 it's like to watch a movie and what it's like to watch violence in a movie and in a lot of ways i think it's very similar to fire walk with me in that mm. you know that that movie is is about i think ultimately about two things the horror of sexual violence uh, that's inflicted upon women and children and the ultimate depravity of network television (laughs) and i think the combination of those two things makes that film truly disturbing and you know this movie uh in particular has been compared to lynch and i think frequently is compared to blue velvet and i think the second big point that i want to make here is just that i think that you have to walk an extremely fine line as a filmmaker when you're covering this subject to make your point without it feeling exploitative and still be able to show 
the true horror of what you're depicting. And I think that balance is something that ultimately is a personal judgment from every viewer. Like if they're able to experience that and for some women film critics that I've read, you know, on this film and on, on Firewalk with me and on similar films find films like this incredibly cathartic and, um, you know, empathetic and, and open-hearted other people find them despicable and would never go near them, you know, if they, uh, if they hear what, what these movies are about. So I think it's, it's up to each person. And I, I think for me that, scene does walk a line that I think more more so than in Firewalk with me is crossed a little bit too much but I think it's certainly a necessary component of what this movie is ultimately about which is sort of the violence that is inflicted upon women in particular in the on the internet and in sort of famous situations and celebrity and uh, tabloids and things like that. So to sort of tone it down would be a bit of a disservice to the subject matter. Yeah, making making it palatable would be not yeah, not doing not doing justice to kind of like what the what the intent of the violence is supposed to do for the characters, the story, and people that would probably be more disgusted at the fact that it's such a soft version of kind of what's happening or an unrealistic portrayal, which is hard to say as kind of like a a person that does not enjoy that type of thing at all, uh, having, having to kind of defend a rape scene in a movie is, is, a, is a very hard uh, position to take, but he does walk walk a line that I think is reasonable. She, or the, the our character Mima, who has moved from being a pop idol, which is a, you know, besides just being a singer, it's a it's a whole package deal. You're packaged to be uh, lusted after by people, by men. You go to the first concert that we see in the film. Uh, there's no women in that audience. It's all men. So she moves from that position into actress, which seems to be a, a role in her mind that is a step forward because actors and actresses uh, garner uh, much more respect because they are not just an icon, but they are embodying people. Um, so for her to uh, want to break away, it's almost like the old uh, the habit of a lot of Disney girls women who are in Disney films and get their big break by being in there. I'm thinking like Anne Hathaway and uh, Princess right. Diaries or um, Jodie Foster. Uh, just or Miley Cyrus. Like, yeah. yeah. These these women who the only way to break out of being considered less than because of their cutesy roles that they were known for is to go to the extreme so they will never be considered for those types of roles ever again because you know i think i i think Anne hathaway did speak to that as like listen once i once i did this movie and i was topless and i had a huge sex scene disney was never going to ask me to be a princess ever again 
for Mima to kind of move forward um, and to be taken as an actress seriously, she has to agree to this thing. And then it is, like you said, there's moments where they call cut because um, they have to change camera and the guy's talking to her and apologizing and she says it's okay and she's looking at the lights and looking around at the different people. But then it gets starts getting intense on the second time or there's one more comedic moment where he can't get his fly open and they have to cut again. But then it gets very, very aggressive and very real and uh, it's portrayed that it is affecting her. She pretends it's not affecting her. She has this sense of uh, being big about it. But uh, once she gets back to her apartment and she has a moment to herself, um, you do see how that, that act of aggression against her affects her. And then later in the film, we have this, we have it repeated, but for real this time, which is, which makes, you know, that's, that's the thing about this film. There's so much doubling of imagery, repetitive imagery, echoing of imagery, that to have this scene happen again, after you kind of, as an audience member, are like, okay, we've we're moved past this, we're done with this, then to have it happen again, uh, for real, it makes it that much more difficult to, uh, to stomach and it becomes really hard to watch so that being said this movie has so much fantastic elements to help uh, elevate it well beyond the average film that to not watch this movie because of those two elements uh, does you and the film a disservice uh, but definitely you know you should make up your own mind about these things but it is a film for any person who loves cinema and the art of cinema, they should definitely be watching this film because it takes some fantastic and innovative uh, techniques that uh, hadn't really been done at that point. And it makes it, incorporates it into the film in such a fantastic way that it's hard not to be impressed with the film as a whole. Well, I just want to also say one more thing before we move on from this, which is that she gets... A scene after the simulated rape that I think is a really important scene where she breaks down essentially um, you know says she was just doing this to make other people happy she didn't want to inconvenience other people upset other people and she gets a lot of moments like that in this movie and I think those moments outweigh the violence that is inflicted on her by these characters who want to possess her or become her both men and women and uh so i think the when you look at the film as a whole i think it's a a very sympathetic portrayal of her character and a and just a a very clear-eyed representation of what it's like to be a woman in this situation I think you know in some ways I find certain aspects of paprika more problematic than anything in this movie but I think that this film just because of how disturbing it is make and dark and just sort of like the dark side of humanity makes it feel ickier uh, yeah even though it isn't necessarily so we kind of, you know, we went right into the uh, the, <laughs> the elephant in the room. We wanted to make sure we covered that because 
you know, to, to dance around it and is it does it a disservice and does, you know, you, the viewer or listener, a disservice as well. So, but, uh, you know, overall, I've, I find this movie to be a really good watch. It's not something you can watch over and over again uh, because of some of those 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 moments and the ickiness, the icky factor that Matt was talking about. But Matt, what was your overall impression of the film? We never really kind of went into that. <laughs> um, I uh, I think that this is is a really great film. I first watched it probably about five years ago i had seen paprika and and liked it but i i had heard uh, uh, you know po- positive things about his other films so i wanted to check them out i watched it on a non-anamorphic dvd uh <laughs> in the few years before it was uh, released on blu-ray and I, I think i was most struck by just how confident it felt as a debut you know um especially for for an from an animator uh the fact that it's certainly a confusing narrative and there are are certain components of it that don't necessarily make sense but it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it uh it feels like what I think it's supposed to be. And I don't think you're necessarily supposed to come up with any sort of definitive answer as to what's going on in the movie. But I think it's more about putting you inside of this person's mind. And in that sense, I think it's an incredibly effective movie. I think that's why, I think that's the main reason why he's gets the Lynch comparison so much because there's no easy answers. There's more of a he 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 is a director uh, enjoys hearing what you think the movie's about and never wants to take that that feeling away from you. Uh, much like David Lynch refuses to talk about his movies, uh, Cohen would talk about his movies, but he would always make sure he says, uh, "This is just my theory. Like, yeah, your 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 theory is just as valid about what happened." This was my intention, but that does, should never take away from what you think is going on because I made sure I left enough things uh, up in the air or, uh, you know, little double, you know, double, not double blinds <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, to make sure that you are able to do some interpreting and, you know, the answers aren't easy. They are, they're there for you to kind of dig and read and discover as you, uh, watch it again and again. There's so many, you know, I think I, I watched it three times for this podcast. I did it once, once uh, subtitled, uh, once dubbed, just to check out the work there. And then again, subtitled, just to kind of start piecing together my my theme theories of uh, what was going on in the film. And, and it is, there's, you can watch it, you can watch it just for the story, you can watch it for the narrative. Um, but there's just so much to dig into it. And it is really assured and confident. I was thinking, because there is so much... Uh, when looking at this movie online, uh, reading reviews and stuff, almost every single person uh, refers to the fact that uh, Darren Aronofsky had uh, used uh, some of the shots for some of his films uh, to the point where he's a, 
he bought the rights to this movie to be able to make an American version of it, which the timeline kind of the timeline kind of skews in weird ways. It makes it almost like he bought it after the fact to cover his ass for in case he gets sued for <laughs> using too many things of it. Yeah, what I had heard was that he bought it for Requiem so that he could do the tub scene. But okay. it, it would make sense to me that somebody pointed out that the tub scene was a direct ripoff of Perfect Blue. Yeah. And so his lawyer was like, you might as well buy the rights to that so you don't get sued. Yeah, Cohn uh, says, uh, I was listening to uh, in the the G, the G Kid Shout Factory edition of the film, there's this fantastic, like, 45 minute film school in which he breaks down the movie like certain key scenes and talks about them and he talks about that bathtub scene and he talks about how he confronted Aronofsky about it when uh, he came over for some film festival or another and uh, there was some awkwardness he says (laughs) (laughs) which was funny but the other piece that I didn't know which was super interesting was he filmed Perfect Blue and he had his storyboards that he used to do that scene and then Darren Aronofsky makes Requiem for Dream and basically does that bathtub shot you know match match to match it's almost an exact replica of the scene and then when Satoshi when Satoshi Kon uh, made his storyboards the actress he used as his model for his storyboards that he eventually altered for the look of Mima when he made the film was Jennifer Connelly mm. <laughs> so he was like which is crazy because I wrote storyboards using Jennifer Connelly as my model and then he makes a movie that rips off my scene with Jennifer Connelly in it, so now I don't know what. <laughs> because I don't know what's going on here. It's uh, too too coincidental. That's but, right uh, out of a Cone movie. Yeah. Exactly. So it's very it's very interesting. I think the thing about the like the confidence is that you know there uh, there's an inter- really short interview with him on the the UK disc uh, of the film where somebody asks him sort of what his intention was with the movie or what his chief concerns were, I think is how they phrase it. And he gets so in the weeds for like 90 seconds. He's just talking about how like, you know, it's really hard work to make a movie and you just spend like a week trying to figure out what this person's house looks like. Like you just have to draw the house and then, like he just goes off and but at the end he's just kind of like I don't I'm not sure I really answered your question but I think really what what like was so illuminating about that for me was that he wrote this script and he had a very particular structure and storyboard vision of what this movie was going to be and he kind of just let that be the movie and instead focused on making every single detail and component of it perfect, exactly the way that he wanted it to be. Choosing when to fill in the faces in the background because it was important or leaving them blank because it was important. You know, like deciding each transition, making sure that there was a difference between the transitions from reality to dream versus the transitions from TV to reality or from TV to dream or from her character 
fantasizing about something versus possibly one of the stalker characters, you know, harassing her. Like those components were, became kind of the thing that he concerned himself with because he knew that the story itself would take care of itself. And I think that component of it is is really impressive to me. The thing I really want to want to talk about with Cone all the time is just um, how he isn't just an animator in the sense of what we, especially in America, think of as being important in animation, which essentially is is creating things that you can't otherwise create in reality, you know, a talking Mm -hmm. dog or, um, you know, somebody flying, um, previous to, uh, CGI, like this was the only way that we could pull these things off was to have animation, you know, whether it's stop motion or, or, um, or cell or silhouette or whatever style you're going to use with, with Cone, I don't think he was, as concerned with drawing things that you couldn't create in reality, I think he was concerned with making movies that you couldn't create in reality. You know, the technique of animation is what is so impressive about his movies. And the fact that he was able to marry that concern with his theme of reality versus fantasy, which is essentially what, animation is you know it's a, it's an approximation of reality that we constantly are aware is a fantasy is is so perfect and I, I think that that merging of of theme and technique is endlessly fascinating but I think what I come back to most often in his movies is that technique component that he's pulling off things that you couldn't pull off in live action movies even as much as directors like Aronofsky or Nolan have tried to pull it off it's just never the same because there's never going to be able you're never going to be able to make scene transitions that are as smooth as the scene transitions yeah. here the elasticity you know. the elasticity of uh, of being able to turn a face and have it be both in the in the st- on the stage in costume and then in the grocery store and have exactly. it match perfectly without it feeling blended or forced. Like, right. it, like if anyone wants a good idea of watch the first five minutes of this movie and you will just like, it's an astounding display of match frame editing transitions, transitions, both of time and of, and of place. I think there's, there's four locations within that within that editing structure of uh you know cham performing on stage mima's a pop girl group cham that she's about to leave uh then versus her in her normal life and then her being asked questions about what she wants to do with her life and it's it becomes a very it's it's just it it's my my mouth is always agape I'm, i'm just staring like i can't it's one of those it's one of those technical achievements that it blends so beautifully story elements themes of the entire film and just this technical proficiency that as a as both a filmmaker and a film lover I'm just in awe of like I sat there for like 
two days, like different showers, uh, you know, where your mind just ruminates on things, thinking like how you would go about trying to do some of these transitions that he's doing. And it's it's impossible without it having this CG feel right. to it, which then, you know, that's the whole part of animation. It already has that layer of we know we're not watching something real, which is also one of the layers when we were talking about the rape scene. Like you also have that as a layer as well yeah. that you, you but it's still it's still affects it's still affecting. But this this film has that layer. And because of that. It's able to perform these things without it feeling like a a cheap trick, like a uh, <laughs> like a uh, trip to the moon, uh, George Melier type uh, type uh, you know jump cut uh, you know in camera uh, spectacle of editing. Uh, it feels so fluid and natural. It's it's astounding, and it builds a language that you are now expecting. And then it slowly erodes that language to yeah. make you no longer be able to consider what is real, what is unreal, what is dream, what is television. Uh, there's so many layers of of uh, fiction within the within the narrative that the way that he sets up this language and then deconstructs it and then destroys it and then. Uh, leaves you kind of wondering, you know, what everyone's saying at the, at any given moment because of that. It's it's absolutely fantastic, and you can tell that as a director, you know, he basically said it's like it's like a band's first album. He basically said, "I'm putting everything I've I like everything every bit of it into this to make it as awesome as possible." But it isn't awesome for awesome's sake. It's awesome to be able to show showcases talent and to support his story and to support animation as a viable source of of uh, entertainment that goes beyond the normal anime that everyone had expected from both him and probably from the studio in general he planted a flag very firmly and it uh i think a lot of people tried to rise to that level um especially in the the more modern ones that are happening now there's a lot of influence of of his work you can see uh, permeating throughout there uh was a uh variety review that came out when the <laughs> film was released in the u.s did you read this is that I what read you're laughing that. yeah it's there's so many reviews for when it came out in the u.s that i'm just like scratching my head over so yeah it's a it's a very uh a terrible review but the first line of the review uh, is forsaking the usual anime fantasy ter- terrain for a straight suspense plot that might easily have been executed in live action form oh. and uh, well first of all that person shouldn't have a job but I think this is a very common thought about yeah. this movie that it could be made live action very easily and not much of it would be uh, affected. Yeah, um, there seems to be a, uh, at the time, there's an expectation of what uh, animation should be and it should be telling stories that can't be told in live action. Right. And so to tell a story that is basically, I mean, it's 
it's a pretty it's a pretty straightforward uh, thriller if you strip yeah, away you everything. From totally it. get away with telling this story. It's a stalker movie. Correct. We've seen yeah. it. We've seen it many times uh, in a lot of TV movies. Basically, that was the that was the the ongoing run in the seventies. Every TV of the week was some sort of stalker or a girl at home alone with phone calls, breathing and stuff. So the fact that people were looking at it for narrative plot as its value is is obscene <laughs> like that's just the, the word that like that is, as the is the uh the thing that you should be chasing after uh, as a film reviewer seems to be ridiculous to me if yeah. you're gonna if you're gonna treat it in a critical response you have to look at it as what it's doing it for it's elevating the it's elevating the animation world uh, at that point if you really want to you know look at it that way well, and it, but it's also like um, sort of exemplifying it, you know. I mean, I think like to me, there's no difference between that statement and saying that you know, uh, The Godfather uh, is a movie that features a gangster family epic that could have just as easily been told in a book. Yeah, you know, like that. It completely misses the. Uh, inherent value in the medium because you're 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 not just um you know the the purpose of of animation shouldn't just be to uh show robots or to have talking dogs any more than the purpose of a movie should simply be to assign images to words that have already been created um and to to kind of assume that that this film is is no more or less than the story it's telling and the uh the capability of the images uh, to be reproduced in live action uh, i think really misses the point uh, completely completely there is a newness and a youngness to the idea of anime that was coming over to the united states that a lot of critics didn't have the skill set to kind of understand which is why I think anime was such a cult thing for so long, because you know it wasn't until you know, Go- Akira, Ghost in the Shell, this, uh, where they were automatically kind of labeled as adult animation as opposed to their them being their own things. You know, you don't. It is. It, it's. They're tell. They're there to tell the story, just like any anything else was. They're just, you know, using animation as the form in which to do it. And to this day, we still, we still don't have a lot of adult animation in the United States. Yeah. And when they do make it adult, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's vulgar adult animation. When I think of things, you know, it's all been, it's all either on TV. Right. Sausage party. Sausage party. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, that's the only example I can think of off the top of my head. Like there isn't really a lot of animation still here made in the United States that is for adults or with adult themes, you know, it's either you make it, you made it live action or it has to be cutesy for kids. And it's really, yeah, actually really... Bojack Horseman, one of the, the sort of more mm-hmm. famous uh, adult animated series of recent memory uh, ripped off this movie 
in one of their uh, season finales. Uh, so, um, it, I mean, which you know, which season o- o- made I'm, an homage okay. <laughs> to this? Yeah, he says he movie. says that in one of his interviews. Homage, ripoff. It's a fine line. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, they. I mean, they do a really good job of it. It's just it, it's very much perfect blue. And actually, um, the the opening credits of BoJack Horseman are are BoJack revolving around as he changes scenes, which is exactly uh, a sequence in in this film mm-hmm. uh, yeah. with with Mima. So there's definitely a lot of perfect blue in in BoJack. I mean, I think in general, like there is a, a sort of negative perception of anime as being. Um, pigeonholed into a particular uh, audience or or tight end type of movie um, but I think it extends to animation in general in the US there is a perception that animation is what is you know who the, what the characters are and what the worlds are that they create there's very little discussion of the actual filmmaking techniques that are used and part of the reason for that, especially in modern uh, animation here, is that they are so insistent on replicating traditional live-action filmmaking techniques. You know, you look yes. at a, uh, a studio like Pixar, they are obsessed with, uh, you know, a, creating a simulacrum of reality. And part of that simulacrum of reality Obviously, when you're making a movie, you're pretending that it's real by creating invisible edits or um, playing to the style of the of filmmaking at the time. So people don't notice the filmmaking. They disappear into the movie. And Pixar is, uh, you know, a master of that because they're they that that's really what they're focused on trying to do is to get you to forget that you're watching an animated movie and instead of trying to kind of push the limits of what their technology can do in terms of the filmmaking, they're much more interested in kind of trying to make it disappear. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, I think that's, you know, as much as that is their style, that is what they do and then you've got something like a Zemeckis who's taking animation and trying to make it as real as possible, which is uh, ends up Horrifying. becoming, you know, oh god, <laughs> it becomes so uncanny it's valley like a that spider it's, that's gonna murder you. Yeah, uh, it's you know, Polar Express is or Scrooge, all that stuff is just so uncanny valley gross that yeah. it's hard to. Uh, take the movie at any sort of value because that's where you kind of say oh this easily could have been made live action at this point all you have to do is animate the penguins and everything else is you're trying to make it as real as possible which is really strange that you're choosing this as your as your medium to tell this story where as a lot of uh, foreign animation that is produced outside the United States they use animation as a medium yeah as a tool to tell a story and it's not about it's not about hiding what it is it's about embracing what that animation can do and can become like uh the idea of like seeing the brush strokes which 
help you tell the story and put an authorial spin on what what is going on uh you know there's been a a pretty respectable amount of foreign animation coming into the united states of late that elevates the medium uh quite fantastically yeah whereas the american stuff that we're putting out it's falling into the same like three or four categories and it there needs to be some sort of independent animation studio that uh, stands up and kind of helps push the medium forward here in the U.S. Uh, because yeah, and there there definitely are cool. underground underground people who, who are. are doing that. I mean, somebody like Bill Plimpton um, mm-hmm. is is definitely a, a representation of that. Although, again, I think he's more telling the story through uh, kind of similar to Misaki Yuasa where it's like the 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 drawings themselves are telling the story to a certain yes. degree as opposed to kind of film techniques that you wouldn't otherwise mm-hmm. be able to do but I certainly think that kind of innovation it goes hand in hand with what Cohn is doing here it's just that I think for Cohn he he is trying to use the use what are traditional filmic techniques like editing, lighting, shot sequence, things like that to tell the story, but just doing them and doing it in ways that only animation can do. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. I think that's what makes this, uh, this film and all of his films, uh, fascinating to, uh, to watch because it's like seeing things work perfectly, which is a rare thing for when you're watching a movie, that perfect shot or that perfect scene or that perfect transition that you're thinking, you know, this is the only, this is like the best of that. And you're seeing him do it consistently throughout, uh, because of animation, allowing him to make things perfect, which, uh, which is just, it's super invigorating as a film as a as a film person to watch these things happen exactly how you would love them to happen and they do perfectly it's it's great it's that feeling over and over again i feel like uh, we're bouncing around here but i'm going to keep doing it because i i think the story is i think the story of this movie is interesting but i don't uh like it's kind of almost beside the point to a certain degree. I mean, I, that no, maybe I, I'm exaggerating because I, I do think like the themes that the story touches on are very interesting. And I think certain components of how he tells that story are both prescient and quite uh, reflective of, of kind of a, a deep truth about uh, our society and humanity and things like that. But I do like the, I mean, the te- the technique here is, is I think, so fascinating and i mean the the other thing i really wanted to talk about in terms of that is is just like how this works as sort of a representation of mental illness you know i i think quite often like meant the way that mental illness is depicted in movies is similar to the way like physical violence is depicted in movies where it's like you get shot and like somebody and you know you double over and fall to the ground or or, or like somebody beats you you know, there's a fist fight that lasts for like five minutes, even though like most fist fights last for like six seconds. Like there's just this exaggeration of the situation and it becomes almost sort of glamorized in the telling of trying to approximate what it's like to um, genuinely have a mental illness instead of just showing somebody 
with a mental illness in, in a realistic fashion. And I guess what, part, part of what I'm wondering is like how you kind of approach this movie in that way. Like if you see this as a movie that's representing somebody, and in particular in Mima, not in uh, Mimania or Rumi, Rumi being the manager and Mimania being the, the stalker, do you think of Mima in this movie as being somebody who is struggling with mental illness through the second and third acts of this movie? Or do you think that there's kind of more of a complicated reason for the kind of dissolution of her reality? This is one of those films where we could do an episode on technique, an episode on story, an episode on yeah. themes. Like you, you, we really could spend a lot of time because there's so he's working. You know, much like cell animation, there's just so many layers that they're uh, that they're putting forth in each uh, in each scene. But uh, to answer your question, I think. I, I approached it as both a mental breakdown uh, due to exterior stresses of such a huge change. Um, we have a character that is struggling to find herself in the world. And there is becomes a disconnect and a regret between who she was and who she is becoming and who the potential uh, her could be there's like three possible things that you know is is working within her uh, and then you couple that with some uh, lack of a better term uh, I'm sure it's not as specific as this but uh, some real gaslighting that's going on with her manager implying things through her Mima's room website uh, making her really uh, question her reality. I thought about that quite often because every time that she's confident or okay about things, there's a little nudge or a little look or a little less support. And then do you, th you know, questioning, questioning her, questioning, having her question herself. It's, it's funny. This movie starts with a question and she asks, uh, who are you? And then somewhere in the middle, she has another question in the TV show where she says, is it you? Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then at the end, she says, you know, she answers that question that, uh, you know, I'm the real thing. I'm the real me. So there is a question that is asked by her as her character. And then as it develops, um, she loses herself and her, her consciousness uh, splits into this, you know, having an emotional psychological breakdown that is fueled and made worse and exaggerated by the stress of being stalked and the gaslighting that is happening by her manager who is seeding all these doubts in her to make her, uh, you know, so she will live the life that Rumi wanted to live because she also was a pop idol star and thinks that that is the, you know, she wants her... It's almost like uh, the concept of parents uh, putting up, putting forth upon their own children like what their expectations for their lives. Uh, you have Tarakoro, uh, that's her agent. Uh, you know, he wants her to expand out, move forward, go into the world, become an adult. It's almost like a fatherly thing of teaching you how to be an adult and get out there and you know you're gonna take the hard knocks and things are gonna suck, but you're gonna pay off in the end. 
so when he has that moment post rape scene where they're in the car and you can see him knowing that it went too far and he wants to apologize to her but she's putting on such a brave face about the whole situation that yeah. to comment on it would undercut the effort she's putting into being a strong person that he just basically kind of does what uh, you know we always call it the friendlies commercial come on kid let's go get an ice cream you look like you're having a tough day oh thanks dad uh you know he has that moment where he just goes well let's go get something to eat you look hungry and meanwhile Rumi is more like kind of the concerned mom wanting her to stay stay in the situation she's in uh be the innocent pure thing uh the forever child and because of that Rumi also starts having dissociative personality kind of disorders uh, to the point where she has a complete psychotic breakdown um, throughout the course of the film and towards the end. So I definitely think that there is a level of, you know, mental, mental concern for Mima in the film. I don't think it was the, I mean, I know it was his concern when making it, this idea of watching this person lose their mind. But I think that the losing her mind is exaggerated and exacerbated by external forces that if they were not there and this was just a story of a girl having to make some hard choices to become an actress, yeah. I don't think it would have exaggerated or gone that far because I don't think she is... Yeah mentally unstable i don't think as a character she is mentally unstable i think it's just the uh, external forces and you know timing that is making her that way yeah i agree i i think in general the movie is much less interesting anyway if it if that's the case you know and i think yeah for me one of the kind of as much as I kind of enjoy the chase scene at the end, I think it's done really well. The the roomy reveal is, uh, I could take it or leave it. It's not really that important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think the most interesting component of it for me, honestly, is that I think in many of these situations, like the the idea that like these fans are you know, evil and out to get you and, you know, can, can be stalker, crazy stalkers. Like the idea that, that Cone twisted that around and made it the person who is in charge of her career and that she's supposed to trust and, uh, you know, that she was kind of driving her crazy and, and putting her through this ordeal all along says, uh, much more interesting things about the entertainment industry than like crazy stalker fan reveal does. So I think for me, it's more about kind of the feeling of kind of getting inside of the paranoia of this person than it is about any attempt to represent any kind of actual emotional breakdown or, or mental breakdown of any kind. Yeah. I, I agree. If this was through Rumi's perspective, then I think that concern would have been more prevalent. But because yeah. it's Mima's, it's uh, which is is which is interesting because uh, Cone does. It's there's two perspectives in this film 
because we also have the perspective of uh, Mimania, also known as uh, Uchida. It's his perspective that we that he's is the only other perspective that we're in, uh, both in some of uh, his murders, which I question by the end of the film how many people he actually killed versus how many Rumi potentially killed. Um, that isn't ever very clear. So what I find interesting is we see uh, these uh, projections of this ideal Mima that Mimania has, which is which he shares with Rumi, which is this virginal, uh, pure yeah uh, in the palm idol. of his hand. In yeah. the palm of his hand, like he, he can, like this is a toy, uh, which goes into the whole, uh, you know, fanboy culture. Uh, the oh god, I can't remember the name of it. You know, ta- otaku or otaku, yeah. Which actually, uh, people who are super pop idols, papu, uh, they're they're a whole separate fan base kind of thing uh, that uh, they're commenting on. But this idea that there's this projection of Mima that is both shared by her aggressors and herself that I find to be uh, so fascinating because they're basically both, you know, one is encouraged by this idea to do bad things and the other one is haunted by this character that is driving her insane. So it's it's this, this idea of this visual uh, representation of this perfect ideal character that everyone is struggling with which doesn't allow Mima to be able to change and grow because people don't want change people fear and hate change and especially fans as we've seen in all fan culture here in the US if you change anything it is the end of the world for fans <laughs> the Ghostbusters franchise being the one that comes to yeah. mind as quick well, as Star possible Wars, certainly. Yeah. Star Wars yeah. eh, you know to the point where we basically made the same movie again just to make fans happy. And then, of course, fans are unhappy because you made the same movie again. Right. But anywho, this concept of, of these characters and their uh, and their ideals of, of who Mima should be and who Mima thinks she should be makes for a, makes for a very interesting uh, you know theme throughout the piece. Because then it's supported by so many fantastic visuals that... Uh, Cone has put into the film, you know, everything from masks to uh, mirror reflections to doubles uh, to the point where, you know, to help us understand her uh, mental deterioration, we see uh, scenes repeated, deja vu over and over again to the point where small parts are changing. And so now we start to question what is, is this yeah. a dream? It's, it's, it's well, so that, well that component done. of it too, like really ties into me mania for me because like, it he's definitely in the first scene where mm-hmm. he gets into the fist fight in the audience you know yeah. that that i buy i'm not really sure he's in this movie at all after that. <laughs> <laughs> i mean like because the like okay so first of all what like he's driving a truck into her that seems yep. unlikely there's a scene that um where she is uh on the set and we, she looks over, there's nobody there. Then they repeat that scene again after it seems like she was having a dream. And then he's standing in the place where there was nobody there that she yeah. sees. 
and throughout the storyline of the television series, they mention the fact that she keeps seeing a security guard that isn't there. Right. So then that makes you think, well, is that the character within the movie, within the television show that's standing yeah. there when she sees it in that moment? Because well, and then I, she, the, the even the even the attempted rape scene is so obviously a replication of what she experienced in the TV series. And then she, you know, obviously gets out of it, hits him on the head with a hammer, and then he's completely gone. Yeah. Did that happen and at his, all? Well, and, and yeah, he's he's disappeared. But then we see his body next to uh, Tarakoro's, uh, the her agent's body. Right. Um, but that could have easily been, been Rumi. Yeah. Yeah. Like killing him yeah. at the beginning of the movie, you know? The only other part where I think he was actually there was the part where she sees the news clipping about the uh, the young punk uh, that got into the fist fight with him uh, has been uh, has disappeared or been killed or whatever it is and she turns around and sees him at the bottom of the stairs like watching her yeah it it, it, it stands the reason that he could be around he's a security guard maybe he's just picking up shifts and making sure he's working schedules that he's near her it would be a perfect Per, you know, for someone who's stalking someone, being a security guard would be a great, you know, especially if he can move around and those agencies are working for all the different entertainment divisions. But, you know. Right. And he could be, I mean, but and Rumi could be uh, sending him notes pretending to be Mima, like she says mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the movie. But she, we also know that she uh, has multiple personalities. So how do we know yes. that she's not sending these notes to herself and posting them on the, on the internet? Yeah, So exactly. it, it definitely seems like, you know, I mean, again, I think all of this is a little bit beside the point because it's kind of, uh -huh. um, you know, designed to be open-ended but and the confusion is really the point of the of the movie yeah. but i think there there are quite a few kind of components of that 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 kind of call into question everything i mean even the 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 chase at the end like the fact that she has this dream where she seems like she's going to be hit by a truck and then the conclusion of the movie is her saving rumi from being hit by a truck like it it really the, there's there's nothing in the movie that you can't point to and say well was this actually happening or is it a callback to this other thing that happened and then therefore if it's a callback it can't be reality it can't be the thing that they're really experiencing so you know yeah, what, it's... what what can i grab onto here it's hard because it's such it's such dream logic in so many places that yeah and and you add besides dream logic you add that there's this uh i've had dreams where i've been at work which used to be a signifier i think i said in another podcast that as soon as i had a dream yeah. about being at work quit i would quit that job yeah. <laughs> um, but she's she's having dreams about being at work but you don't know if that is the case because you know, it, it, they're so they're so realistic. You know, you have the scene under the bridge where 
uh, the detective of the show is telling her about what's real and what isn't real, and she looks over and sees the security guard and then ends up almost getting hit by a truck driven by the security guard. Then she wakes up in the same exact position, same exact outfit, goes to back to the same location. This time it's not raining by the bridge. She still she looks over, the security guard's not there. The same conversation happens. But throughout all these, there's like three sections of repetitive. Uh, so yeah. there's the bridge scene of two takes of that. There's the interrogation scene or the scene where they're looking at her through the uh, double mirror as she's uh, in her room. They do two takes of that. And throughout the whole thing, you hear these like every time you think like, OK, this is the real thing. You hear things like cut and then they cut to the scene. But there's right. no explanation why the word cut is or take two take three and you're just like okay so is this in and that layering in of these devices to help keep you completely ungrounded helps create a sensation for you the audience members i think of also feeling like mima does yeah about like what is real like the days are blurring the scenes are blurring her life is becoming unhinged and us as the audience is also really invested in this and keep kept uh completely unmoored like she is at that moment and that is a such a spectacular thing it it, you're right the storyline it can be interpreted many ways i mean christ i think the two of us we we both like had talked at some point saying didn't Rumi start Mima's room? Why is everyone talking about Mimania being the like the mastermind behind Mima's room? Because it was Rumi, she says it. I started Mima's room and then started reaching out to susceptible fanboys, and it's easy to nudge someone to do something for you when they think it's you know to hold your honor. So you know how much was he actually killing people? How much was it Rumi talking to herself? It's just that. I think Khan says it in in that uh, in that special feature where he's giving a master class on his movie. He says the beginning of this film was so important to me because I wanted to make sure everyone understood that this was a movie about masks, about things that are not real, and about trying to keep the internet from in infecting your lives. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's already concerned about the internet for infecting your life back in 97 yeah. is super, super prescient. Like, I can't believe that that was a concern like that early on. You know, right away, we know we have the whole uh, we have the whole uh, premise of what this movie, the theme that this movie is going to be exploring all the way through. But also and, what uh, this movie isn't. Because it isn't yeah. a Power Rangers movie about a guy, like about exactly. fighting a, a giant bug. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. And uh, yeah, the one the uh, you know, uh, in the Wikipedia entry for this movie, they say that the final line of dialogue, I don't know if you've uh, looked into this, but the, the final line of dialogue, which is which is Mima looking into her rearview mirror in the car saying, uh, it's me, it, I'm, it's the real me or I'm mm-hmm. real. Uh, it's been translated as I, th- I think that's the direct translation is uh, I'm I'm real or I'm the real me was spoken by Rumi uh, like the voice char- character is uh, is Rumi in the in the 
Jap original Japanese version, uh, not in the uh, English version. Oh, it was done by the voice actor? Uh, I am 100%, no, I won't say 100%, but I'm 95% sure that is not true. Uh, that it is that it is Mima, the voice care, uh, actor who, play, who plays Mima, who says the line of dialogue. It's tough because it's such a quick line of dialogue, but it definitely does not seem like uh, Rumi. But I think the fact that people have kind of propagated that theory just shows you how many rug pulls there are in this movie and how easy it is to buy into any sort of theory that, you know, even in this final moment where uh, she's talking basically, well, I was going to say she's talking directly into the camera but she's actually doing the exact opposite of that, which is looking into a Mm -hmm. mirror, which is facing the camera. (laughs) But she, you know, she says for the first time in the movie, like I'm real, like this is a real me. Yeah. She's found herself finally, but people can't even buy into that. (laughs) No. And and I, you know, because of what's just happened. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's funny. I remember uh, when I was working on uh, castle rock, I joined a Facebook Castle Rock group because it, it amused me to no end to see what people were making of the show. Yeah. Like just making up stuff that wasn't there at all. It wasn't in the script. It wasn't when we filmed it. But people really love interjecting theories. Yeah, fan on theories. Things, yeah. Which is, you know, half of the reason why we have QAnon and that bullshit that is existing right. in our lives right now. Which um, also came from the internet. Yeah. Yes, which also came from the end. Well, which is funny because there's a quote from... I'll have to find the direct quote, but I'll paraphrase it. Cohn says something along the lines of, the internet is the thing that is most like our dreams because it's the only place in which our subconscious takes over in, which, in ways in which we interact with people. Uh, because we say things we never would say to their faces. We only say things we would say in our minds. We look at all the things that only we would look at knowing that no one is watching us. And that's Mm. why people are now becoming more and more animalistic in terms of reaching into their id because that's what they're fueling now. They're fueling their sexual fantasies. They're fueling their desire to speak in ways that uh, you wouldn't in polite society. And he, he was very interesting, the quote. I, I'll, I'll find it for the next episode. Uh, I think it'll, it'll come up as, uh, as something to talk about for Paprika. But uh, it's, it was very interesting. And I think that with fan theories, it's almost like you can't accept that this is, this is over, so we need to come up with more things to keep it going it's the it's that concept that we need to just like the fans that are in the series in the movie uh in you know at the beginning with all their theories and all their like is that true that she did this basically the first people we hear from in the movie yeah Yeah. are the fans and they're not you know they're the fans that are kind of like they're 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 pernicious fans that are kind of like Nah, she wasn't that great in that performance. Yeah, they're like the comic, the comic book store guy from yeah. The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, she could be better. I guess yeah. it makes sense. You know, it's the worst. Yeah, and, and they're just 
they're not outwardly angry at her. They're not going to write her angry fan mail. They might comment if there's, you know, there's an opportunity to get a dig in, but they're the ones who are just going to sit there and just make people feel horrible about themselves with their you know, their interactions. And so by having that that thing at the end thinking she's really still like messed up in the head, it's like why can't you accept that she's kind of moved on and found herself? (laughs) I think that's, I think it's important that it happens in the mirror because it's the first time that she's looking at her reflection, that the reflection doesn't look back Mm. and judge her. She looks at the reflection and it's her that is fine. It's finally her connecting to herself and she's happy with the person that's in the mirror, which, you know, I think it's important. We've had a whole movie where, she looks at her reflection and her reflection doesn't reflect back the thing that we see or in the reverse with Rumi, we see her projection of what she is and her mirror is showing back what she really is, which is, 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 is more disturbing. You know, this idea of like, that's what she is and that it's just, it's such a fantastic take on it that, you know, Mima is seeing a, a version of herself that she doesn't want, and Rumi's seeing a version of herself she doesn't want in the mirror as well. You know, they're both they're both you know opposite sides of the same kind of coin deal, and it is, it really kind of, oh man, it's so hard to talk about this movie without it spinning into forty other layers of things <laughs> that you want to talk about because it is there's there's so many you know so many layers and there's so many dualities uh, throughout the piece and screens and mirrors and just it just keeps going and going we haven't even talked about her fish tank yet which is a huge part of the yeah, movie or the color like red her, yeah or the color red <laughs> 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 or the fact that like me mania looks like he's wearing a mask like, yeah there's moments where we see him where he has no eyes um, you know, he's one of the only characters yeah. that just, you know, his, his, his eyes are so sunken in that it looks like he's wearing a cheap rubber mask. Well, I, one thing I do want to make sure we touch on is the music. Cause I know you mentioned how much you liked the music in this movie. It's pretty, oh, it's so pretty awesome. Good. It is really good. Uh, it, it's a mix between the, the composer Shizu Kurahashi no, he did the sound effects. No, Masahiro Okumi. Masahiro Okumi. Sorry, yeah. I had two sounds next to each yeah. other. I think there's a great mix of sound effects yeah. and music cues that really adds to the paranoia. Uh, I always, I think of the garage scene when the when the writer of the movie is uh, walking in the garage and you hear the uh, the Cham song playing faintly in the background. Um, to reveal that there's a boom box in the elevator and it's yeah. just blasting it, but it's blasting it as it's like clipped. Like it's not like it, like it's so loud that it's clipped off, which is such a great effect because you could just, if you're making a movie, you could just have it be super loud without any distortion, but they really want to show you how loud it is. And so they do the thing that happens when music is too loud when recorded they make it clip and, and, and crush the uh, crush it down and distort it a bit. I found that to be just such an effective use of uh, a sound effect. And it just it permeates the whole film with these uh, great uh, sound effect moments in a, in a, in a soundtrack that is uh, uh, the voice work in some of the songs is really disturbing. And it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I really like the it. it um, 
almost set, I mean, it grows more and more ominous over the course of the movie. And there's some just really interesting work going on in the back. It reminds me a lot of um, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Um, mm. It's got this real industrial punk rock, like noise rock kind of thing going on. Oh, yeah. Um, where. But it also feels um, more kind of made for the internet era than than that movie, uh, which was you know ten years earlier. But yeah, it's just got got this really uh, sharp edge to it that I think yeah, it's it's, it's hard like to imagine certain those those later sequences without the music here. Yeah, it's like a precursor for like a. The Matrix and hackers and all this like uh, this uh, dis- discordant uh, kind of driving uh, industrial metal type stuff that uh, Nine Inch Nails makes a uh, super popular in a few years. Yeah, although right? Hackers was was before that. Hackers was before this movie. Yeah, Hackers was ninety five. Man, oh dude, I can't believe that <laughs> that movie is so bad. Well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> speaking of watching this movie multiple times, uh, not only for the music and the uh, in the story, but I did watch it uh, with subtitles uh, yes. know, in the original Japanese, but I also watched the dub version just to kind of, you know, to compare and contrast, make sure things were on the up and up and there wasn't like <laughs> a story beats or things that are missing in the background. I think the two biggest things that I picked up was uh, because of subtitles, you don't always get translations of background conversations and background uh, like radio broadcasts unless it's super important mm. to the plot. Mm-hmm. In the in the dubbing, I did feel uh, there was a, an enrichment of just because I was able to understand like some of the throwaway lines that like the crew was saying or that people were saying in the background. Um, that kind of helped flesh out some ideas of kind of like what's real and what wasn't and like little conversations that were happening that didn't make it to the subtitling because usually there was someone more important kind of talking between or over that conversation that I found you know it was very good of course if I spoke Japanese I would pick up on all those nuances and I wouldn't have to worry about it but well that's that's the thing yeah I feel kind of silly sometimes like it being so adamant about the subtitled version of animated movies because obviously all animated movies are dubbed. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but but I think uh, you know for for me I think it's it's about the fact that the filmmakers are almost always in the room with those voice actors in the original language, and you know are much less likely to be uh, in the room for any American dubs. That's certainly the case with the, the Disney Miyazaki dubs, which are, you know, are, are okay. Um, (laughs) and, and I've watched them probably more than I've watched the subtitled versions of a lot of those movies, just because I've watched them so many times with my kids, Mm -hmm. but I do prefer the original soundtrack just because I think, you know, it's, it, it was the original intention of the filmmakers. Yeah, it's 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 the same it's the same debate that happens with, you know, live action films as well. And it's weird because there is a there are 
cultures of different nationalities that they grew up with dubbing no subtitles because that was just how you saw movies from you know foreign movies mm-hmm. i know uh it was for a long time in, in where my wife's from colombia the subtitling movies only were in the kind of like upper class theaters where the kind of common theaters mm-hmm. that were around were dubbed because you got to take into consideration that a lot of people can't read. Right. Uh, so these movies have to be shown to them. And so there's whole actors that made their careers playing certain right. actors. Uh, but in the case of this, you know, having that option is fantastic because, yeah, there's something to the original performance that is going to be interpreted when you go into the dubbing. And they did a really good job with this. I think the only part that kind of was like, I didn't notice as well. I guess there's this whole thing about the fact that Mima has a, like a Tokyo voice where she's there and then she slips into kind of like a country girl dialect. Yeah, it's a a Kansai um, dialect, which is is a region... Uh, it, like it's part of like Kyoto's in it. I think it's a, yeah. it's a fairly large region, but it's a, it, I read that it's essentially equivalent to a Southern accent. Um, exactly. Which, which was funny because they chose to make it a Southern accent in the dub. So oh. it was really off putting. Cause I was like, what the hell's going on? Oh here? my God. Got, so when she talks mom, to her mom, yeah. The they're... mom on the phone is all like, Oh, what you doing, sweetie? And then you're just like, what is this? And then she slips into like, it's not as strong as her mom's, but she does slip into a bit of it. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's all right. And then I read about it after the fact and I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Now they kind of took it a little more literally instead of just making her feel more relaxed and less formal. They went with a Southern accent, like a whole accent change. So I yeah. wasn't aware. That's one of those things as a, uh, as an American, I wouldn't have picked up in the Japanese. That, right. Uh, you know, yeah. There's also like, a, you know, because in the way that Japanese people use, I, there's it can be gendered in certain situations mm-hmm. so in translations it's very difficult to explain that difference uh, and distinction and so in this movie a lot of her dialogue which would typically lean more feminine is actually not gendered uh, in the the word selection that she's using. Oh, okay. I'm probably I probably sound like a complete idiot to anybody that speaks Japanese right now, and I'm like not making any sense. But I'm doing the best I can. If anybody who's we'll listening have to, have to this Dice speaks, Dice yeah, give you, uh, people give you some listen correction. to this who speak uh, Japanese, we did pick up a few Japanese uh, followers on Twitter when when we announced that we were doing uh, Satoshi Kone. So um, they're probably even just mad at us that we aren't calling him Kone Satoshi. So. Um, but i I think uh yeah no i think any of that kind of aspect is is really interesting because um obviously you're always going to miss a certain component of um of what's happening there's a really uh there's some there were some really great articles when um, parasite hit it big about the uh the guy that does all of Bong Joon-ho's subtitles because he is an American who lives in Korea and knows Bong Joon-ho really well and knows a lot of those filmmakers, has translated other um, filmmakers. I think he did a, a couple of the Hong Sang-soo films as well. 
but works closely with them to develop the English subtitles for the movie, reads the script, watches the movie, like does, talks with them about the translation because, you know, obviously like they're thinking about this movie as being exportable for a foreign audience. So they want to make sure that they can get their vision told and, yeah. you know, as, as close as uh, translation as possible. Which is funny because that was the linchpin for how uh, anime's uh, subculture in America was founded, was people were passing illegal tra- uh, copies of the tapes that they had done their own dubbing for. Like, mm. so there was a whole, like, who, like, competitions for who, you know, like, Oh, you got to get this guy's movie because you know he he has the best dubs. He does the best uh, best translation for for the anime. So when when these movies started getting official releases, uh, you know there was a whole like backlash uh, because people didn't think the translations were as good as some of these underground mm. uh, dubs. And so there's a whole culture about it uh, tape swapping on the internet before you know bit torrenting. You know was really kind of new and they were bit torrenting uh these movies with these people's dubs and they're people famous for like how good they were dubbing these uh anime films or tv shows you know and people would die by their uh their copies that they would get at uh trade shows and uh, conventions that you know selling this guy's dubs of these movies because mm-hmm. he has a better it's a whole it's a whole culture it's fascinating like i uh like i said i've been the, it's it's funny the the whole concept of anime uh, extends beyond what is actually the animated programs we're watching to the whole fan culture that surrounds it and the subculture that cuts through it that you know it's it's even more so than like the you know Disney fans Disney fans have a theme park they go to anime fans didn't have anything and so all they had was each other and it just became this whole uh, subculture that is it's it's you know equal parts fascinating and equal parts like oh come on yeah uh, which, well, which happens think, yeah, with any fan with culture. anything yeah i think that's <laughs> yeah. true well and the other thing like i think i don't think people in the u.s like can conceive of the popularity of this stuff in japan you know and mm. this is true of manga as well like manga is not just the equivalent of comics in the u.s people from all walks of life and at all ages read manga um and there is a huge range of subjects and stories and the type of even ways that people consume it that that are experienced in japan and you know the authors uh, are super famous you know the, uh, their their new mangas get huge publicity it's it's not the equivalent of comic books in the u.s um you know it's closer to tv or or something like that here Um, so the breadth of the subject matters that they cover is you know we've our culture has developed our comic books to basically be superheroes at this point uh, you know, we right, did and then underground, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. did have a culture of all kinds of different genres and themes, uh, and it's just slowly bottlenecked to right. either independent comics that are kind of more about different things or superhero comics, and that's it. 
whereas manga does have like stories about baseball teams or sports yeah uh, there's a girls. whole a whole genre that is just targeted at teen girls like mm -hmm. it, it's like a it's not even like a whole series it's like it, no, it's just it, there's yeah. a word for it well um, and then and then, and then yeah there's a, i think shonen is for boys and then there's like shoji is for girls yeah but then within that genre right. there's a whole genre sub there's all these subgenres yeah. like ones that are just uh, books for girls and the storylines of the books are about cute boys that fall in love with each other like that's how specific <laughs> these things get that there's a fan base for just those types of things yeah and when we talk about like otaku like that that this fan you know it it has an it has a very negative connotation it, it almost translates more into kind of like what we have in the united states is like incels these right. people that are so obsessed with these things that they pull away from society, stay like otaku basically means staying indoors. They never leave because yeah. they're they it's like, like being to in your mom's them. basement. Yeah, they yeah. surround themselves with the things that they love, and then beyond that, you have this concept which is uh, what Mimania kind of puts through is this moi, which is this love of something that is unattainable but is innocent and pure. So Moe is this concept of people who love like 2D animated figures. So there's these a whole collection of people that want to marry 2D animated people because of this strong sense of Moe, which when you take it as you can, you know, per subvert it into this idea of falling in love with a two dimensional character on screen and wanting to have it be attached to you in a uh, legal way through marriage but if you look at the traditional what moe meant it's almost can be seen as kind of like the american version if you apply it to film as cinephilia which is this feeling of contentment and happiness from this two-dimensional uh item i think uh i think the cutest way i heard it described is feeling strawberry you feel strawberry <laughs> for something like this red blush of happiness that you can't contain but is something you can't act upon either because you can't because this thing is fictitious so it's, it's a very i'm learning a lot about it because uh of this movie <laughs> uh you know i wanted to talk about this whole idea because it, it becomes a theme that cohen uses many times yes yeah. otaku this uh these super fans of things that uh it become can become dangerous these obsessions but the only one obsession that he's fine with is people who are obsessed with movies which is funny there's a whole there was a whole uh, article i read i'll have to dig it up for the next episode about uh how uh cone uh, dislikes otaku for anything that isn't people who just are fascinated with movies or <laughs> it's their primary focus because that is his Right. That is his favorite thing. So all of his movies, everyone else is projected as being like scumbags for loving this <laughs> stuff. But people who love movies are awesome, <laughs> which is great because, you know, so that's why how I translate that moe otaku to uh, cinephilia in this like sense of like you love watching movies. And so you you get this feeling, the sense of satisfaction from uh, being able to watch a good movie. Uh, has the same kind of way i like that i like that expression well he's also i mean you know uh 
he worries about people blurring the line between reality and fantasy mm-hmm. unless you are uh, fascinated with the blurring of the line between reality and fantasy then you can exactly. be then you can blur the line between as long reality as you know and as long as you know <laughs> as long as you know that you're blurring it there is there it's okay because i think he says he goes i don't mind as long as there's balance yeah, there you if go. There's Im- if there's imbalance, then it's wrong. Like you can't you can't live in that world if you don't have a have a balance. So it's a uh, it is very balance is would very be a funny. nice thing. I can think of a few things that could use some balance right now. Ugh. Well, uh, I I normally I would be like, is there anything else that we should touch on for this movie that we haven't touched on? But I'm afraid to do that because I feel like we could definitely go on for another two hours about this movie i can think of already many things that we haven't covered but i think i think uh to to avoid blurring the line too much between this podcast and the rest of our lives we're gonna have to um (laughs) wrap this up um do you have any final parting words about about perfect blue so for all the people that think that we've glossed over so many things we do recognize we do recognize the the gender, the gender topics that we should be talking about in this yeah. movie, the, uh, the the reality fantasy, the uh, the whole uh, the celebrity aspect, the online aspect. Uh, we know these things exist, and we do we do recognize them. We are just running out of time to talk about them in the depth because it would be like a four hour podcast tonight. But uh, I think that this movie is a great example of the possibilities of what animation can do in a profound way that any other form of visual entertainment can't achieve beyond the story that is we've already talked about being visceral and sometimes violent sometimes confusing but very layered nuanced in parts uh, filled with imagery that uh, has multiple meanings, just so much uh, symbolism uh, in almost everything that goes on in this film, uh, but it coalesces into something that shows a deft hand of a director animator that has a level of confidence and concerns that make me as a person who loves watching movies super excited and super interested in seeing everything else that he has achieved which unfortunately due to his short life because of pancreatic cancer and his untimely death we are limited in what we can watch of his so i highly recommend if there is ever a series of podcasts we have done in which there is access to everything we're going to talk about, I highly recommend you watch along because it is a journey well worth taking and a great example of animation as a art form that is indispensable um, in terms of its place in uh, cinema history. I agree with all of that. I mean, I think... If you have listened this far, you're hopefully going to continue to watch these movies. But uh, I will say 
this is the this is the toughest one of these um <laughs> the other ones are are quite uh, a pleasurable experience this movie is is not an easy watch uh it's very uh stressful and intense but i do think it's worth it and next uh next time we will be covering uh one of my all-time favorite movies probably my favorite non-ghibli anime oh nice yeah if you're if you're a fan of like uh giallo films then perfect blue is going to fit into your wheelhouse quite nicely but uh that's awesome that we're going to uh talk about one of your favorite movies uh next time we talk i'm very excited and with that we're complete for another week Thank you.